Broadcasting live from the KVXL studios at Liberty Baptist Church in Las Vegas. Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. The Frittle Show with Crystal Heath. I've said that we must be cautious in claiming God is on our side. I think the real question we must answer is, are we on his side? Faith, family, freedom. For me, it's very simple. I think we've got to we've got to get the country back on the right track with the most inspiring agenda a voice in the desert now here's crystal heath and hello las vegas happy thursday one and all i am crystal heath you're listening to the frittle show on kvxl 101.1 fm experience liberty radio from liberty baptist church in las vegas shout out to you guys listening over at the 405 media.com as well great to have you here it's Thursday. I call Thursday the gateway to the weekend, and as such, it is one of my favorite days of the week. I have many favorites. I would say at least six of the seven days could be my favorite, depending primarily on what week we are in. All right, so the big headline this morning is, of course, the Donald Trump tax plan. We've gotten a little glimpse at it. Dailywire.com has some highlights. They have, uh, the headline is Trump to propose biggest tax cut ever. Here are seven things you need to know. So we'll look at these and we'll take a break then we'll come back. We've got uh, we've got some interesting interesting stuff to talk about today. Barna has released their State of the Bible 2017 uh, report so we're going to look at that as well. Next week going to have David Limbaugh. He is Rush Limbaugh's brother. David Limbaugh is going to be on the program to discuss his new book, The True Jesus. I'm looking forward to that. We've got some other exciting guests coming up as well. I'm not sure if it'll be next week, possibly next week, or it might be later. I don't know yet, but uh, I've got an interview coming up that I am geeking out about a lot. Not because it's some... (laughs) His name is Dave Arnold. You may not know who that is, but if you grew up listening to Adventures in Odyssey, you're going to recognize his voice, and I'm pretty excited about that. The executive producer of Adventures in Odyssey is going to be on the program uh, either next week or possibly the week after, but uh, we're going to have him here pretty soon, too. So, Got some fun stuff coming up for you guys, but for now, today, we're talking about tax cuts and the state of the Bibles. Let's jump right in. Seven things you need to know about the Trump tax plan. It's being called the biggest slashing of taxes ever. And since it was one of the presidents, uh, this will get done in the first 100 days of my presidency uh, list. It's likely he's going to probably fight for this one. And to be quite honest, he's going to need to because much of his 100 days list has, quite frankly, not been accomplished when it comes to uh, Obamacare in particular. So... This is, this is a big one for him. All right, so here are seven things you need to know from Daily Wire. Number one, Trump's proposal will reduce the number of tax brackets to three. It would be the 10% level, 25%, and 35%. The tax code currently includes seven brackets, so reducing them to only three would be a way to streamline and simplify the tax code. It's also an across-the-board tax cut, reducing the top rate from nearly 40% to 35%. The proposal eliminates the estate tax, the alternative minimum tax, and the Obamacare surcharge. The estate tax, also known as the death tax, taxes an estate worth over $5.45 million after someone dies. Naturally, this caused the Washington Post's Philip Bump to sneer that Trump only wants to eliminate that tax to benefit his family, but this ignores the facts that the estate tax is immoral. The government shouldn't have the right to confiscate wealth earned by an individual that he or she wants to pass on to their beneficiaries. Then you have the alternative minimum tax, which was first passed in 1969 in order to ensure that wealthy Americans didn't avoid paying taxes. But because it wasn't adjusted for inflation, some in the middle class have become ensnared by this tax. The Obamacare surcharge is a 3.8% tax on capital gains and dividends, meaning that eliminating the surcharge would increase the incentives for people to invest. Third thing you should know, personal deductions will be stricken from the tax code with the exception of charitable and mortgage deductions. 
So uh, deductions are about to get real simple. The only deductions are going to be for charitable giving and uh, and mortgage. The most noteworthy deduction that will be taken out is the state, and this, by the way, would be referring not to say um, um, like spouses, children, and it's not talking about that. It's talking about if you file a, a long form 1040 and you itemize your deductions, the itemized deductions would be reduced to uh, to charitable giving and mortgage deductions. So uh, that means that it would take out the state and local tax deductions, which is a which is a chop at the tree of leftist liberalism in blue, deep blue states that um, generally vote in favor of higher taxes, and of course are are opposed to Trump. But so in these states where you can write off your state taxes, it makes it easier if you're. I say easier is a relative term. If your state taxes are high, it's not so bad, I should say as bad, if you're able to write them off. Now you wouldn't be able to write them off. So you, that's that's huge for places like New York and California where the state tax is just outrageous. Uh, fourthly, the corporate ta- tax rate would be lowered from 35% to 15%. Ideally, that rate would be zeroed out, but it's a solid step in the right direction since the United States currently has the third highest marginal corporate tax rate in the world, and nearly 40% when including state taxes. Only the United Arab Emirates and Puerto Rico imposed higher corporate tax rates. Fifthly, the standard deduction would increase twofold. According to Fox Business, Trump's proposal would cause the standard deduction to increase from 6300 to 12600 for individuals and married couples filing separately. Married couples filing jointly would see an increase from 12700 to $24,000 in their standard deduction. Wow. That's a lot of moolah right there. There will be a one-time reparation tax of 10%. So, uh, in other words, the administration would be enticing companies who store their profits overseas to funnel that money back into America by offering them a 10% tax rate rather than the usual 35% rate, which would uh, make it more likely that people would be buying more, uh, would do buyback shares. Uh, it's hard to explain, but basically he's trying to get companies to come back to the U.S. and invest their money here in the United States, and that would be a great way to do that. And seventhly, the administration is looking to rescind various tax breaks for wealthy individuals. We don't have a whole lot of specifics on, on what those would be yet, because we just have a, a basic outline of what Trump is looking to do. So uh, Daily Wire is saying more details are likely to come in the ensuing days, but the administration better get prepared to fight for this proposal, as CNN has already found anonymous GOP aides trashing it, and the Democrats are starting to unleash their class warfare rhetoric. Some on the left are even suggesting that Trump releasing his tax returns give the Democrats political ammunition against the tax plan, because the tax proposal could be slated to benefit solely Trump and his family. A silly proposition, since the plan should be evaluated on how it benefits society as a whole. The tax plan can be passed through Congress by a simple majority in the Senate through the reconciliation process, but that can only happen if the proposal is deemed to be revenue neutral, which can only be determined once the full details of the plan come out or if it expires once it reaches the 10-year threshold. If the administration can get the proposal through the reconciliations process, then it should receive conservative support since no tariffs, border taxes, or value-added taxes, or VAT, uh, are being included, and there isn't any infrastructure spending in it as well. Should Trump be able to sign this proposal into law, it could prove to be a major victory for his presidency. It would be, in my opinion, a huge victory and could potentially have enough, uh, um, depending on when it would take effect. So hypothetically, let's say it would take effect next tax season. I would think that that would probably not happen, but you never know. I never know how long this would take for this to to come into effect. If I was Trump, I would be pushing for this effect takes effect um, 2018 tax year because elections, elections, elections. You follow me? Elections are about people and their pocketbooks. That is most often what it comes down to. And you might think, well, that's shallow. 
vote my values. Well, I, you probably, if you're listening to the station, you probably do, and good for you. But for a lot of people out there, they're really they're voting their pocketbooks. You would be amazed at how many people don't know who they're voting for until they actually walk into the voting booth. I have stood outside more polling places than I can count. That's not true, because I, I can count pretty high. But it, it, it has never ceased to amaze me how many people really wait to make decisions on elections and how many people base who they're voting for, not on what they've seen uh, in debates, not on what they've read about the candidates, not on the candidates' past or their history or their, their record, but rather, one, how that candidate makes them feel, and two, their current financial state. Do they think this person is going to make their checkbook bigger or slimmer? That has a lot to do with it. So, this tax plan, it appears, and again, we don't have a whole lot of information because what we have right now is an outline of what the president wants to do. We don't have details of the plan, but it would appear that it would pretty much benefit everyone who pays taxes. Now, again, that's just based on what we know, and what we know is not a whole lot because all we have is an outline. But if you're reducing the tax brackets, the number of tax brackets, you're reducing the corporate tax, you're reducing the individual income tax, you're doubling the standard deduction, you're keeping charitable giving and mortgage deduction but getting rid of the rest, I still think for most people in the middle class, most people that pay taxes that this is going to be a good thing for them. And by good thing, I mean that they get to keep more of the money that they earn. But we will see. We, we don't know. And by the time this gets to the Senate, I mean, who, who knows what would happen? Because you got to have... You got to have changes, and you got to talk about it, and you got to see what we want to do, make friends with people, scratch some backs. Oh, Politics. It's, it's a it's a complicated game that they play on Capitol Hill. And rather than just simply sit here and try to explain it to you, instead we're going to take a break. When we get back, we're going to talk about Barna's report on the state of the Bible 2017 and what it says about our nation and how and what we should do about it. Stay tuned. All right, welcome back. You're listening to The Frittle Show on KVXL 101.1 FM Experience. Liberty Radio from Liberty Baptist Church in Las Vegas. My main topic for today's show comes from Barna's, uh, Barna Research's new report, The State of the Bible 2017. They do one of these every year, and it's always fascinating to me. So these are their top findings. This is from Barna.com. Many Americans are searching for beacons of hope and moral grounding amidst uncertainty and perceived moral decline. Barna conducted the annual State of the Bible survey commissioned by the American Bible Society to examine behaviors and beliefs about the Bible among U.S. adults. The results show that Americans overwhelmingly believe the Bible is a source of hope and a force for good, even as they express growing concern for our nation's moral. These and other snapshots are included in our list of the findings from this year's State of the Bible report. All right, so I'm just going to go through some of these with you. All right, 20% of Americans are what Barna calls Bible-engaged individuals. These are people that view the Bible as either the actual or inspired Word of God with no errors or as the inspired Word of God with some errors. Uh, These are people that read, use, or listen to the Bible four times a week or more. Now, personally, I wish they broke that down further. I wish that we could see the statistics of who, uh, what percent view the Bible as the actual inspired Word of God with no errors, and then break off those who view it as inspired with some errors. Uh, now, personally, I've never been able to understand those who say the Word of God is inspired, but there's a few things in there that actually are, are we can't believe. Because in, to me, that just invalidates the whole thing. And I know we could have a, a, a deep uh, philosophical conversation about that, but I believe that all of the Bible is inspired and inerrant and perfect and complete. Um, and that's in its original text, and I'm not going to get into translations. I'm just talking about Bible the Bible in general <coughs> today. 
All right, then we have uh, 38% of Americans who Barnett would consider Bible-friendly. These are people uh, who view the Bible as the actual or inspired Word of God with no errors. Once again, but they read or use or listen to the Bible fewer than four times per week. So, among those who view the Bible as the actual or inspired Word of God with no errors or the inspired Word of God with a few errors, uh, and who read, use, or listen to the Bible at least multiple times a week, that would be 58% of Americans. Catch that now. 58% of Americans believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God. Some believe, though, that the inspired word of God has a few errors. Again, I don't, I don't get it. Don't ask me. I don't know. And engage with the Bible by either reading, using, or listening it multiple times each week. 58%. 23% of Americans are what Barnaf has called Bible neutral. They view the Bible as the inspired uh, word of God, but that's, they say that it has some factual or historical errors. Or they say that it's not inspired, but it explains... Uh, the principles of God. These are people who read, use, or listen to the Bible once a month or less. Then you have the Bible skeptics. That's 19% of Americans. They view the Bible as just another book of teachings. And then lastly, and the smallest group of Americans, 13% of Americans, uh, are what Barnett terms Bible hostile. They view the Bible as a book of teachings written by men intended to manipulate and control other people. You wouldn't, these are not the numbers you would expect if you engage in our modern media. You wouldn't expect that 58% of Americans believe that the, the Bible is the inspired word of God and they're engaging with the Bible by either reading, using, or listening to it multiple times a week. You would find it hard to believe that only 13% of Americans believe that the Bible is just another book and that it was written to manipulate and control people. I find that fascinating. Barna also found that uh, as a person gets older, their engagement with the Bible increases. The older you get, the more likely you are to be engaged with the Bible. That is, the average age increases with each Bible engagement uh, segment. So you, you progress, they found you progress up the scale from Bible hostile to Bible skeptic to Bible neutral to Bible friendly. The older you get, the more likely you are to walk up that ladder of uh, of eventually getting to the point of being engaged with the Bible four times a week or more. They found that women are more likely to be Bible-friendly and Bible-engaged. In general, women are more actively engaged with the Bible than men. For example, they are more likely to be Bible-friendly. That's those who are in- engaging their Bible uh, at, uh, at least multiple times a week, 60% to 40%. And then... Um, Oh, I lost my page here. And, and then the engaged ones, those that are involved with their Bibles, more than four times a week is 53% compared to 47% uh, with men. They also found that Bible users prefer print, but increasingly use other formats. The way Americans engage with the Bible is changing. Though most Bible users, 91%, still prefer to use a print version of the Bible when engaging with Scripture. An equal number report using another Bible format than print in the past year. Use of technology-related formats are all on the rise. More than half of users now search for Bible content on the Internet or smartphones, and 43% use a Bible app on their phone. Which is interesting because the last time this was done, or excuse me, in 2011 when this was done, 89% of Americans preferred a print version of the Bible. That's gone up to 91%. But overall Bible usage, regardless of whether they prefer a print or a, or a, um, whether they look things up on the internet or have the Bible, uh, a Bible app on their phone or listen to biblical teaching via podcast or an audio version of the Bible, every aspect that Barna surveyed has increased 
since 2011. Every aspect. That's incredible. People are more engaged with the Bible now than they were six years ago. Most in in the United States, these are just U.S. statistics. Most households own a Bible, Barna found. The vast majority of households, 87%, own at least one Bible. Even the majority of hostile and skeptic households, the households where uh, people believe that the Bible is not the inspired word of God, that it's just a book of, of words that men wrote, and those that believe it was written specifically to deceive uh, and, and, and manipulate people. Even those individuals, over 60% of them own a Bible. And that is very interesting. Um, half of Americans, over half of Americans, read, listen to, or pray with the Bible. Half of Americans are Bible users. That is, they engage with the Bible by reading, listening to, or praying with the Bible on their own at least three to four times uh, a year. Uh, but nearly one-third of adults say they have never read, listened to, or prayed with the Bible. Thirty-two. Per, that's 32% of them. But again, remember, over 50, or about 58% of Americans are engaging with the Bible by reading, using it, or listening to it multiple times a week. 58%. Now, there's two more things I want to hit on here before we talk about some of these things. And these are the main ones that, that I'm going to talk about moving forward. Barna found that most Americans desire greater Bible use. More than half of all adults wish they read the Bible more often. 58%, same number as those that are engaged with the Bible regularly. 58% of adults wish they read the Bible more often. But despite Americans' desire to read the Bible more, two-thirds of us, 67% of Americans, say their Bible reading is about the same as it was a year ago. Additionally, more than half of those who report an increase in Bible readership attribute it to their understanding that that Bible reading is an important part of their faith journey, 56%. That's interesting. Seeing how the Bible changed someone they knew for the better was an important motivating factor for 30% of adults, as was being asked by someone they know to read the Bible. 56% of Americans recognize that increased Bible engagement is a quote, this is how Barna asked the question, is an important part of their faith journey. So you've got 58% of Americans that are engaging with the Bible multiple times a week. You have 58% of Americans that say they want to read the Bible more than they already do. And you have 56% of Americans who say that Bible reading is an important part of their faith journey. That's encouraging. That's so encouraging. And yet, Knowing that the Bible is an important part of our faith journey, to use Barna's Barna's, uh, lingo, and wanting to read the Bible more doesn't seem to be translating into what is actually happening. So, because you've got, the, the problem is you've got the base of that 58% of people who are already engaging with their Bible, but that is not increasing. That number is actually, while it sounds great and it is fantastic, that number is actually down from the last time this study was done. Last time the study was done, that number was at 61%. So you've got 58% of Americans that are engaging with the Bible on a weekly basis, which is awesome. You have 58% of people who say they want to read their Bible more. And you have 56% of people who say that reading the Bible is a critical To spiritual growth, essentially. That's what Barna was basically asking. They just don't know it. And yet the number of people actually reading the Bible, despite the fact we want to read more, and we know it's crucial to our spiritual life, the number is decreasing. So I want to look at two things right now. I want to talk about biblical illiteracy and why Bible reading is important. 
And then we'll look at how to actually uh, get into a Bible reading plan. All right, so let's start with biblical illiteracy. 75% of Americans will not read a single book this year. 75% of Americans will not read a single book this year. And look, I get it. We're busy people. We live in a busy world surrounded by other busy people. It's a go, go, go or get left behind world. But when it comes to the Bible, think about it. Do you believe the Bible is God's word, that it is God's communication to you? Do you believe and do you tell other people that you believe that the Bible is the infallible word of God and that everything in it is true? Then two thoughts. First, If the Bible really is God's words to us, that's incredibly, awesomely amazing. Why on earth would you not want to read and study the words of God? And then, if you say the Bible is infallible and you tell other people this, then you should probably know what the Bible actually says, right? I mean, how can you say that you believe the Bible is 100% true if you've never even read the whole thing? Now, I'm not, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty, maybe convict you a little bit, but have you ever stopped to think about that? Are we telling people that we believe the Bible is 100% true, but we've never actually read the whole thing? I feel like that's kind of like running for president without ever having read the Constitution. Like, it, it, it's just something's not right there. Christianity Today has a, has a piece uh, called The Epidemic of Biblical Illiteracy in Our Churches. And there's one part of this. They have some statistics. I just want to read the statistics they have in this, in this piece. Um, and they say a recent LifeWay research study found that only 45% of those who regularly attend church read the Bible more than once a week. Over 40% of the people attending read their Bible occasionally, maybe once or twice a month. Almost one in five churchgoers say they never read the Bible. Because we don't read God's word, it follows that we don't know it. To understand the effects, we can look to statistics from another Western country, the United Kingdom. The United Kingdom Bible Society surveyed British children and found many could not identify common Bible stories. When given a list of stories, almost one in three didn't choose the nativity as part of the Bible, and over half, 59% of British children, didn't know that Jonah being swallowed by the great fish is a story in the Bible. British parents didn't do much better. Around 30% of them didn't know that Adam and Eve, David and Goliath, or the Good Samaritan are in the Bible. To make matters worse, 27% thought Superman is or might be a biblical story. More than one in three believes the same about Harry Potter, and 54% believe the Hunger Games is or might be a story based on a biblical account. Did you get that? Over half of British adults thought that the Hunger Games is or might be a story based on a biblical account. But it's more than simply not knowing stories from Scripture. Our lack of biblical literacy has led to a lack of biblical doctrine. LifeWay Research found that while 67% of Americans believe heaven is a real place, 45% believe there are many ways to get there, including one in five evangelical Christians. 59% of evangelicals believe the Holy Spirit is a force and not a personal being, in contrast to the orthodox biblical teaching of the Trinity being three persons in one God. As a whole, Americans, including many Christians, currently hold unbiblical views on hell, Sin, salvation, Jesus, humanity, and the Bible itself. So here's the problem. We live in 2017 America. We have greater access to the Word of God than any generation before us has had. In fact, we have so much access, we can even debate which version of an ancient text is more accurate than the other ancient version of a text. We can read the Bible in leather, imitation level leather, pink, purple, green. We can read it online. We can read it via an app. We can hear it read to us via a free app any time of the day. And we can even get it via uh, uh, audio drama if we want. 
I mean, we have virtually unlimited access to Scripture. Nine out of ten homes in the United States own a Bible, and 90% of churchgoers say they want to be pleasing to God, but only 20% of us actually take the time to read the Bible on a daily basis to see if what we're doing lines up with what God would have us to do. So obviously, there is a disconnect here. Why is it that while we have over half of Americans that are in, say they engage with their Bibles on a, on a weekly basis and say they wish they would engage with their Bible more and they know that Bible reading is crucial to their spiritual walk, how, how, how do we end up then in this state? I think maybe part of it could be because while we say, oh yeah, that's, that's an important thing. I should, I need to be doing that more. You're right. That is important. I wonder if we really take the time to think through why it's important to read the Bible. It's not simply important to read the Bible because that's something that our pastor or our parents say we should do. And so we should do it because they say so, and they seem like smart, good people. So probably that would be a good idea. Focus on the family had a it has a list of eight reasons for studying the Bible. I want to go over them with you because well, it's not an exhaustive list, and they say it's not an exhaustive list, but I think it's a good, it's a good basic list, and I'm trying to stick to just a, a, a basic overview today. So here's their, here's their eight reasons. They say the first reason is cultural literacy, and these aren't based on, on, on they're not in an order of this is the primary reason why you should, that's not it, it's just a, it's just a list. Right, so cultural literacy. One reason to study the Bible is for cultural literacy purposes. Edie Hirsch writes, to be culturally literate is to possess the basic information needed to thrive in the modern world. Simply put, the Bible contains a wealth of cultural literacy. References to the Bible are found not only in religion, but also art, music, philosophy, literature, law, and more. Knowing what the Bible says is an important part of everyone's base. Many popular phrases and figures of speech also find their origin in the Bible, including being a good Samaritan, the folly of letting the blind lead the blind, going the extra mile, and ethical maxims such as do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Hirsch considers the Bible so important to cultural literacy that it appears first in his Dictionary of Cultural Literacy. Then we need to read the Bible because we need to know what it says. What does it say? Another reason to study the Bible is to learn what it has to say firsthand. Whether one is a supporter or a critic of the Bible, or perhaps just neutral or uninterested, history has demonstrated that the Bible cannot be ignored. Considering that the Bible is important to three major world religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, it is worthy of study. In addition, the recent rise of hostile criticism towards the Bible itself and religion in general also makes it worthy of study. Sometimes the critics do not always quote the Bible correctly or in context. Knowing what it says firsthand and having some knowledge of the context is helpful in understanding not only current events, but key ideas the Bible addresses, such as the nature and existence of God, the human condition, the biblical pattern of redemption and salvation, and ethics. So, for example, if you're going to a church and they say, hey, you know what, we, it's... Bible says that we're supposed to love everyone because Jesus loved everyone, and so uh, we're we're not going to say that homosexuality is a sin. So that's what that's what the church says. Well, if you don't read your Bible, you're you're just taking their word for it. This is this you need to be biblically literate so that you understand. Well, this is what the Bible says. People died. I wish I had time today to tell you the stories of people like like John Wycliffe and William Tyndale who spent their lives literally and gave their lives so that we could have the Bible. So that rather than just having to believe that whatever someone said uh, in whatever church you went to was true, and that's that's all we have to go off of, so that you could read the Bible for yourself and find out. It's a very important reason to read your Bible. There's also personal edification. For thousands of years, the Bible has been read not only as history and God's word, but also for personal edification. This, of course, is a more meaningful reason for studying the Bible for those who believe in God, but the Bible is also surprisingly edifying for those who do not believe. It is full of individuals facing moral choices, life challenges, and frankly, situations that are applicable to us even today. 
Uh, the Bible is available for us to learn not from not only on an intellectual level, but on a personal and emotional level. Another reason to study the Bible is to help others. We gain centuries of wisdom in studying the Bible. Proverbs, for instance, contains general principles and ideas to assist anyone in living their lives in a way that is pleasing to God. Studying the Bible in order to help others is not just for ministers, priests, or pastors, but it's something everyone can do. By knowing what the Bible says on different subjects, we can help others through difficult circumstances and encourage them. Now, what I would say are the, the, the four big ones. The Bible is how we get to know Jesus. For Christians, the Bible culminates in the New Testament account of the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Some 2,000 years after the time of Christ, his life and ministry remain relevant even in our contemporary world. Regardless of how one views Christ, like the Bible, he cannot be ignored. Far from being a distant prophet or irrelevant figure in history, Jesus Christ is Christianity's foundation. Particularly studying the four Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John will help anyone gain a better understanding of Jesus and his mission. Then, of course, it is God's word to us. And I talked about this a little while uh, earlier. But people inspired by God recorded the words that make up the Bible, thus communicating what theologians call special revelation. In other words, God has chosen to reveal himself not only through creation and conscience, but especially through Jesus and his word. Studying the Bible, then, is a matter of course for those who love God and desire to follow him. Another reason we read the Bible is to know God better. Since the Bible is God's word, studying it is a way to know him better. Through his words, we can come to know not only the nature and attributes of God, but also to understand his plan for each of us. We also learn God's plan in history, his sovereignty, his providence, his love, and more. There's only so much we can learn about God apart from the Bible, but with it, we can learn all about him. And then, of course, Studying the Bible helps us to avoid error. We're supposed to teach what is in, uh, aligned with sound doctrine. And if the Bible is our authority for faith and life, then the inspired words it contains will help us to avoid error. In a pluralistic world with many religious and non-religious ideas competing for attention, studying the Bible provides us with a firm foundation in God's truth rather than the errors of the world. Knowing the Bible also helps us respond to error and answer questions that skeptics and others may have about it. So, so this is why it's important for us to study the Bible. And to one degree or another, as I said, 56% of Americans agree that we should be studying the Bible more. So why don't we do it? I think a lack of Bible reading is in many ways similar to a lack of accomplishing New Year's resolutions. Because we all have the best intentions, right? But without but intentions without a plan and without commitment will always be just that. Intentions. And I have to tell you what, I have a Bible reading plan and I plan to read the Bible every day and there are still some days that I miss. Let me tell you this though because I don't want you to get discouraged. It's okay to miss a day of Bible reading. Just pick it up again the next day. The problem is it's easy sometimes if you miss a day for that habit to die quickly. And one missed day can become two missed days, two missed days becomes three missed days, and before you know it, you've gone a week without reading your Bible. So don't get discouraged if you miss a day. Just don't let a missed day become a, a habit. And I think there's a lot of reasons why people don't read the Bible. And by reasons, I, I think we could also say excuses. Here's some of the common ones. I don't have time. I don't have time to read the Bible. And I get it. Once again, we live in a busy, busy world. But you know what we do? We make time for the things that are important to us. People say, well, I don't know where to start. All right, that's a fair question. And we'll, we'll look at that in just a minute. Having a, having a Bible reading plan and, and where you can start. Or if you just are like, well, I, just, I need to know where to start. John, Proverbs, those are some of my favorite places to start. You could say, reading makes me sleepy. Oh, that's interesting. All right, well, audio Bible. Let's we'll talk about that in a minute too. People say, well, the Bible is too confusing. Hmm. It, you're right. The Bible can be confusing, but it doesn't have to be. Anything is confusing when you're not familiar with it until you get to know it. But if you commit to spending, say, a month with the Bible, I bet you'll be a lot less confused after that month than you were before you started. 
And then people say, well, I never get anything out of it. Hmm. Maybe it's because if we go to the Bible expecting to to get something, rather than praying and asking God to open our eyes that we might hear from him and, and approach the Bible looking for ways that we can apply it to our lives, and then we actually put the things that we read into practice, we'd realize that's where the reward comes. The reward, especially when you're when you're beginning in your Bible reading, is not simply in the Bible reading itself, although I, I do believe that comes uh, later. The reward is in applying what the Bible says. And some people say, well, there's so many contradictions in the Bible. Okay, show me five and then we'll talk. All right. And they say, well, the Bible is boring. Okay, actually, no, the Bible's not boring. It may seem that way to you if you're reading a genealogy right now or perhaps the dimensions of the tabernacle. I get that. Those are some hard ones to get through. But let me let me help you out. There's some there's some parts that are really not boring. And you say, well, I forget. I just I get distracted. Okay. Well, eliminate the distractions. Here's what I do. This happens to me so often when I'm praying or, or reading my Bible. And I, I I think they're well. This might be too deep for today, but I don't think they're thoughts that originate with God or even with myself. I think they're thoughts that come from elsewhere. And they're not bad thoughts. They're just thoughts of, oh, you need to do this, and you need to do this, and you need to do this, and why don't you do that? And oh my goodness, you need to do this, and you need to do this. And so what I do is I just always have a pen and a notepad. And if I start thinking of all the things that I need to do, I just start writing them down. I write it down, go back to reading. I go, well, but you need to do this and this. Okay, I'll write those down too. So I can look at that and do those after I'm done with this. And then people say, well, I'm not smart enough to read the Bible. I don't, I don't get it. I'm not smart enough. Really? Well, did you have to read or, or memorize things for school or for work? Everyone does. You, maybe maybe you, you're not a good reader. That's okay. We can do Bible tapes, CDs, MP3s. Uh, we have enough mental capacity to grasp God's word. We often just lack the motivation to do it. So how do we get started? What are some tips for Bible reading? I've got I've got five of them. We'll call them Friddle's Five Bible Reading Tips. You ready? Here we go. And then we'll be finished. Number one, start small. Just do it. You don't have to read ten chapters a day. A really simple way to begin reading the Bible is to just start with Proverbs because there are 31 chapters in Proverbs and 31 days in many months. So, for example, June is right around the corner. June has 31 days. You can read Proverbs 1 on the 1st, Proverbs 2 on the 2nd, and so on and so forth. You don't even need a plan or a chart or anything else. You just know if it's the 3rd, I'm reading Proverbs chapter 3. If it's the 20th, I'm reading Proverbs chapter 20. And in one month, you'll have read the entire book of Proverbs. But if that seems overwhelming, you don't even have to read a whole chapter. You can read partial chapters, but just do it. Just commit to reading the Bible. And if you're a list person, write it on your list because then it will drive you insane until you can get it done and cross it off. If you're not a list person, write it on your mirror, whatever you do. I don't understand people like that because I'm a list person. So figure out what works for you to make sure that you get it done. Maybe you say, okay, I'm not going to eat breakfast until I do devotions. And if I don't have enough time to read my Bible in the morning, I don't have enough time for breakfast either. That's pretty good incentive, at least for people that like to eat. Um, you know, and then the, there's the debate about the time of day. I've heard entire messages on why you should read your Bible first thing in the morning, and I agree that there are a lot of benefits to doing that. But bottom line, you're going to benefit from reading the Bible no matter when you do it, so start small and just do it. I don't care if it's at midnight, if it's on your lunch break, if it's in the morning, just start reading your Bible. Which brings me to tip number two. You don't actually have to read to read your Bible. That doesn't make any sense, right? Wrong. There are free apps that you can download which will literally read the Bible to you. The Bible app is one of them. Very simple. It's just Bible. <laughs> it's a Bible app. You can even get a dramatized free audio Bible from Bible.is. Bible.is is awesome. That's the that's what we play here on KVXL if you listen throughout the day and you hear the Bible uh, being read at all, that's from Bible.is. They're dramatized, uh, so there's there's music they use uh, when different characters are speaking in the Bible. They use different voices, so it really kind of brings the Bible to life, but it is word for word, and they have a variety of translations, including the King James. You can get a word for word King James dramatized Bible for free f- downloading from Bible.is. 
personally, I'm a fast reader and I enjoy reading, but maybe you're just not. Maybe you're not a great reader or you maybe you've got five kids climbing on you in the morning and it's easier to listen when you change when you're changing that diaper than it is to read. I get that that's okay. The important thing is that you're having time and you're spending time in the word of God. And to do that, tip number three, you need to have a plan. And by plan, I mean a Bible reading plan. Start small, start big, pick your poison if you will. But either way, have a plan as to what you're going to read and when you're going to read it. I use the Bible app. It's simple and it's easy and I always have it with me because it's on my phone. Now, if you can have a plan for consistency and you can say this is where and when I'm going to read the Bible every day, that's ideal. That's awesome and I'd encourage you to do that. Personally, I don't. I used to. But my life currently, sometimes my mornings are hectic, sometimes my evenings are hectic. So I just, I never know when I'm going to have that that time. But I have my app programmed with reminders to let me know if I haven't read, to remind me, if I haven't read yet today. And say, hey, you still got to do this, you still got to do this. And again, I'm a list person, so for me it's easy to, it's on my list, I have to do it or I can't cross it off. But you might be someone who has to have the consistency of the same time and the same place to get it done. And if you can do that, I would encourage you to do that. And then keep track of what you're reading and consider journaling, which leads me to my next point, which is, this is my fourth tip, Bible reading. Ask questions. Don't ignore the things you don't understand. To me, this is huge. The rabbis had a saying that you learn more about a student by the questions that he asks than by the answers that he gives. And that's really profound if you think about it for a while. And it means two things for me. So for one, you're reading the Bible, and as you're reading and you're going along, you find out that Goliath is four cubits and a span tall. There's a very obvious question there. How much is a cubit? And what in the world is a span? Don't just read past it and be like, okay, whatever ancient Bible words, he was a tall dude, I get it, let's move on. No. Maybe you don't want to interrupt the flow of the story and research it right at that moment, but at the very least, write it down or make a note so you remember to look it up later. But beyond the obvious questions, learn to ask other questions. Learn to read between the lines, if you will, in a sense. For example, when Jesus is going to come into Jerusalem prior to the crucifixion, he tells the disciples to look for a man carrying a water pot and follow him to his house because that's where, uh, that's where they're going to celebrate the Passover. Okay, so what? That seems normal enough. Just keep reading. Does it, though? Think about that time period for a second. People are carrying water pots, so if everyone's carrying a water pot because everybody goes to get the water at the same time, it's a community social event, how do you know which guy carrying the pot is your guy? Well, a simple study will show you that it was very unusual for a man to carry a water pitcher. Uh, World's Bible Handbook says the custom of carrying water in the Holy Land is ancient. However, it was and is the woman's job to go to the well or spring with a pitcher and carry water to her home. When the Gibeonites deceived Joshua, he judged them and made them servants to chop wood and carry water. This punishment may seem mild to us, but how humiliating it was to a man carrying water in public, a woman's job. This helps us to better understand how easy it was for the disciples to identify the man carrying the water pot. It's not a question of seeking one man out of many men carrying water pots. No, it's that he alone would be carrying one. Because men don't carry water pots. So you're looking for the guy that is clearly standing out. And that leads you to the question of, why that guy? Why did Jesus have the disciples go find the guy with the pitcher? Was it because he was a servant? Was it because he was... Uh, needing encouragement because he's the man doing the woman ju- woman's job? I mean, was it to humble the disciples? Because really, who wants to talk to the servant guy who's the sissy doing women's work? Jesus doesn't do anything on accident. He wanted his disciples to have an interaction with this man who was clearly, uh, uh, well, we know that he was a servant, but not only was he a servant, but he's apparently, I don't know what's going on there, but he's he's a servant, not only a servant, but he's a servant doing the women's work. And he didn't want just want the disciples to interact with him, but they t- he told him to follow him. And there's so much there that I'm leaving on the table because I'm running out of time very quickly. But let me just whet your appetite by suggesting you do a study on what following someone meant in that time period of rabbinical teaching. Um, all right, I, I got to I gotta go on because I still have my fifth tip. All right, so number five. Number five tip for Bible reading is mix things up. 
Once you've developed a habit of Bible reading, change it up sometimes. Try reading a chronological Bible or read in a different order than you usually do or or read another one of the good translations or read a Bible that doesn't already have your your underlining in it. I've got a Bible that goes uh, all the way across the page without the dividing bar for the columns. And when you do that, you'll see things that you've maybe grown accustomed to in your Bible. For instance, I have my study Bible. That's what I call my Bible Bible. That's my Bible that I will be devastated if I lose it Bible. It's the Bible that I can open without knowing the chapter or the verse, but I know what page that passage is on or the general area that it's in, and I can find it if I have my Bible. But give me any other Bible, and I have no idea where it is in there. It's the Bible that I wrote in with purple marker when I was 11 years old because I felt that my impression of Scripture at that moment was so strong that it just couldn't wait until I found a normal pen or pencil. No, I had to write in it with big, fat purple marker, my profound 11-year-old thoughts. It's my Bible that has two pages taped together. That's my Bible, right? But I purposefully took a break from using it this year because of how familiar I am with it. I know what verse is coming. I know what's already underlined. Now I'm I'm using uh, I chose to use the Bible app to go through this year and while I know in a general sense what's coming I can't anticipate it I don't know what verses are already underlined it keeps things fresh and new and different and exciting and next year I'll probably go back to my Bible Bible I try to I rotate it every couple of years but for now I'm enjoying using the Bible app so there you have it we've gone from the state of the Bible in America. We've learned that the majority of Americans own Bibles, believe that Bible reading is vital to their spiritual life, and the majority wants to read the Bible more often. We've talked about why Bible reading is important, and I've given you some of my own personal tips, which would be start small, just do it. You don't have to read to read your Bible. You can listen to it if that works better for you. Have a plan, ask questions, and mix things up. And there you have it. John Wesley said the Bible had to be written by one of three people, good men, bad men, or God, bad men or God. It couldn't have been written by good men because they said it was inspired by the revelation of God. Good men don't lie and deceive. It couldn't have been written by bad men because bad men would not write something that would condemn themselves. Leaves only one conclusion. It was given by the divine inspiration of God. I want to know one thing, the way to heaven, how to land safe on that happy shore. God himself has consented to teach me the way for this very end, he came from heaven, and he has written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book at any price. Give me the Bible. I have it. Here is knowledge enough for me. Let me be a man of one book. And Abraham Lincoln said, I believe the Bible is the best gift God has ever given to man. All the good of the Savior of the world is communicated to us through the book. And that's all the time we have left for today. Thanks for being with us. If you missed the majority of the show and you're like, oh man, I really want to hear the beginning. I wanted to hear about Barna's research and the state of the Bible in America today. Awesome. You can listen to the show on iTunes or SoundCloud. Just search The Friddle Show and it'll take you right to it. That'll be up here uh, this afternoon. And you can also get past episodes of the show if you would like. Thanks for tuning in today. You're listening to KVXL 101.1 FM, Experience Liberty Radio from Liberty Baptist Church in Las Vegas. We'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. And since it's Friday, I'm going to give something away, and you do not want to miss that. We're going to conclude with Amazing Grace. My chains are gone. And then we will transition from that into, uh, let's see, the next program, which I believe is Dr. David Tice with Living in Liberty. Have a great day, everyone.